All right, guys. Welcome back. Cardboard box seats. It's me, Nick. Games too, but he appears to not be talking. Can oh, sorry. You know we oh, find my bad. Oh, oh my is. gosh. Not, not this routine again. Not this Blues Clues guy. Blues Clues. Yeah, I thought we were doing a bit. Guess not. Okay, we can run with that. Go ahead. Start over. No, it's okay. <laughs> On to more pressing topics, um, like today's guest. Okay. Today's what guest. A pressing was... topic at hand. Yes, very much so. His name is Sammy Gelfand, and he is the in charge of coaching analytics for the Pistons. He he was a he was a super cool guy. Um, he talked a lot about, you know, actually for a second there, I thought it was going to get super heavy in the analytics and the data side, but he ended up bringing a lot of like good points and a lot of. Uh, he did talk about the statistics and the data side of it, but for the most part, I think he he did a really good job of kind of telling his story and how it kind of shaped the way um, he kind of approaches the game now and the difference that it had that his stats show just how different the league is um, this past year to two years ago to even further back ten years ago. Yeah, he does a lot, and I mean he takes takes stats pretty seriously, and he's in charge of some pretty crazy stats like a Zaza assist. Still no idea sure what that what was. That means. Until, well, you'll you'll have a better idea if you listen to this episode again, and if you listen to it for the first time, he, he explains it pretty well too. So that that's true. That's true. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like the movie. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to be in the right mindset, which is something we also talk about. Yes, we are really just trying to get a sponsor by Christopher Nolan. So if you know Mr. Nolan, please reach out to us. Did you just say right. Christopher? No, Christopher. Christopher Nolan, hello. Anyway, we also also did did some word association with some of the players that he's helped coach on the Warriors and the Pistons, where he's currently at. Yeah, I mean, overall, it it was such a fun episode. He just had so much to say about his time with the Warriors and his time now with the Pistons and where he hopefully will be in the future. And, I mean, Sammy was just such a cool guy. So glad we had the chance to talk to him. But enough, enough of us blabbering about it. Let's play the actual episode. All right, I'll do it. Did you want to say anything before? Um, I feel like I... Let me check my notes real quick. Hold on. Oh, uh, something about a saxophone? Oh, play that saxophone. Oh, play that saxophone. Ever heard of a cardboard boxy? It's it's kind of like an armchair quarterback. It's a word we made up, and we think it fits our views of basketball pretty well. Our made-up phrase means that we think and act like a manager of a team, or even the commissioner some days. But we don't exactly have the bank account to follow up on our team-owning aspirations. We've got ideas and opinions about the league that change when we come up with new ones, and we may have some funny jokes. The important thing is we love basketball. But we also realize there are plenty of important people who make what you see on the court run smoothly. There are a lot of people who work behind the scenes to make the league the best it can be. And we like to showcase them because they don't always get the credit they deserve. If you're looking for great interviews and bad jokes, you've come to the right place. So come watch with us from our cardboard box seats. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cardboard Box Seats. Nick's here. Gabe's here. 
And today we have a very special guest, Sammy Gelfin. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. We we joked uh, that I wouldn't butcher the name, and, and I did. So that was great. Here well, you we are. You just butchered the first name. <laughs> butchered the first name. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> so, Sammy, um, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. You know, I was born on a you know cold winter day in Chicago. Um, you know, obviously grew up a huge sports fan. You know, Chicago being the sports capital of the world. Not like the winning capital of the world. We just have a lot of sports teams and a lot of sports fans. Um, grew up a White Sox fan, so that's where a little bit of my pessimism is coming from. But I had 2005, so that you know, that's all I really need for my baseball fandom. Um, you know, grew up, but if you talk to anybody who knows me from when I was born till now, I may be the worst athlete you've ever seen. So <laughs> playing was never kind of the career I wanted it to be. My uh, basketball career ended in eighth grade. Um, I scored a total of two points in five games with like 40 fouls. Luckily, they didn't get flagrants in eighth grade basketball or would have gotten some of those too. So, you know, kind of, you know, was always watching the game, always really involved like as a fan, but, you know, never had really much direct involvement. Went to a college in D.C., George Washington University to study political science and history. Was a big fan of politics. Um, you know, thought politics was what I wanted to go into. Kind of dabbled in a little bit. And I realized I kind of hated it with a passion. So as every parent loves, you know, after their child finishes their second year of college. By the way, I'm going to keep my major because I'm almost done, but I don't want to do it anymore. And you basically just wasted, you know, 200 plus K on my college education for a degree I plan on never using. So... <laughs> Decided I wanted to work in sports, kind of did some odd jobs. I was a broadcaster for our men's and women's basketball team in D.C. Um, you know, had my own sports talk radio show, you know, for a semester. Then I did some work with the Nationals, some work with our athletic department. Graduated from college in the maybe the worst economic time in our, you know, in my lifetime and realized that I couldn't get a job not only in sports, but anywhere in the world. So I decided to go to grad school at Georgetown for their sports management program. Uh, when I was there, worked for a college football bowl game in D.C. It was at the time the Eagle Bank Bowl. I think it's now the Military Bowl. Um, and then I worked for a sports agency out of McLean, Virginia, Octagon, which, you know, at the time represented Chris Paul, Rudy Gay, Steph Curry. Um, Giannis is now part of them. And then, you know, realized I love the agency side, but then realized I really kind of love the team side more, wanted to be involved on the team side. Uh, tried to get a job in, or internship in the NBA, not surprisingly, given the non-athletic breed that I am. Didn't have NBA teams calling me. Uh, was lucky enough to kind of get a start in the G League. At the time, it was the D League. I'm so old that almost every team I've worked for and the league I started in doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> uh, so started in the D League in Reno with uh, Coach Eric Musselman, um, you know, former NBA head coach. Worked there for a year. Then, you know, we were affiliated with Sacramento and Golden State. Golden State ended up buying a team in North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota Wizards. Um, you know, ended up getting kind of internship there during the lockout. Probably was the only person in the history of the world that was excited to move to North Dakota. As <laughs> people wanted to see if I had mental issues when I was talking about how excited I was. Um, they ended up moving the team from Bismarck to Santa Cruz. I was given an opportunity to either stay with the Santa Cruz Warriors, you know, in a full-time position or be a video intern for Golden State. Um, really enjoyed my time in the G League and actually thought the kind of full-time experience was going to be more beneficial to me. And, you know, also kind of helping a team start off, um, you know, in a new city, I think was a really good experience for me. 
So I ended up taking the job in Santa Cruz, was there for a year. I think I called up to Golden State, was with them for five years. And now, you know, then moved to Detroit and now just starting my third year with the Detroit Pistons. So talk to us about your current position with the Pistons. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the Director of Coaching Analysis. Analytics. Um, analytics, excuse yeah. me. Uh, talk a little bit about what this position is and what it all entails. So the primary, you know, role of the position is to be kind of the main analytics, you know, conduit for the coaching staff. But instead of being someone who's based out of the analytics department and has computer all day, I'm based out of the coaching staff. So I'm on the floor with the guys, you know, helping rebound, helping during practice, sitting behind the bench in the games. I'm in meetings, you know, helping workout guys. Kind of, I'm just a coach, but, you know, you know, like we have offensive coaches and defensive coaches and player development coaches and video coaches. I'm just like an analytics coach. But my main goal is to make sure that we are taking advantage of all the analytics data that is provided to us, you know, both from a studying standpoint, but also a translation and using it either from a coaching perspective or the player's perspective. So what does a typical day like pre-COVID look like? Well, that's what's kind of fun about the job. There's no such thing as a real typical day. But, you know, leading like if it's a non-game day, you know, most of the time we get in the office, you know, early in the morning, kind of check what's going on in the league, you know, seeing kind of how the team we're playing, you know, going to be playing next is doing. I do a stats scouting report for every game, do a stats post-game report for every game. That's kind of the meat and bones of a lot of stuff I do. Um, I'll also do a lot of kind of internal, like, analysis, lineup analysis, five games, ten games, you know, 15 games, trends, you know, kind of whatever kind of pops up during the year. I'll then go down to practice, kind of help with that. You know, depending on how much work I get done, I'll either be finishing up work, go straight to practice. I'll either be in a coach's meeting, go straight to practice. Or if one of my guys is shooting before practice, I'll be out in the court and kind of helping with that. You know, kind of help participate in practice, you know, help rebound after after practice. And then I'll kind of go upstairs and finish whatever work I have to do for the day. You know, on a game day, you know, most of the time, you know, most of the work for the game has already kind of been done. So more is kind of any last second requests or questions that come up. We'll probably get some of my game sheets ready, you know, kind of the lineups of the opposing teams, you know, kind of some of their tendencies, you know, things we may want to attack them on, you know, more very specific stuff that we want to kind of say for the game. We'll have somewhat of a shoot around. Then after shoot around, probably try and relax on the road. I'll take a nap at home. You know, it's harder to take a nap, you know, so and then head to the arena you know, and kind of just help around, you know, pre-game, you know, and then um, I'm behind the bench for every game, kind of managing our on-the-bench video and then challenges. Um, and then after the game, start work on the post-game reports. Man. So yeah. when we were doing our research to, like, find out a little bit about you, I'm like, I, I kind of okay. thought to myself, you seemed like uh, Jonah Hill from Moneyball. That is the that is the, the comp that most people use to describe me. They <laughs> can't think of anybody else, so it's always Jonah Hill. So, <laughs> is that is that a fair um comparison uh, yeah i mean jonah hill was probably more on the front office side like okay. i think you know some of the stuff that jo- the the character of jonah hill yes. i don't think jonah yes. hill actually can do probably the elixir's his character can the jonah hill character was uh, you know kind of doing a little bit more front office and less kind of impacting the day-to-day you know of the coaching side i'll do more front office in like the off season you know kind of help like you know pick out what players i think you know, are good analytically, but also may fit in with our team and our style of play. Um, you know, I kind of am more of a micro analytics guy than a macro analytics guy for all 
the econ majors out there and the only big words I learned from political economics. But so there are some similarities. He was just kind of more on the front office side. Now, baseball is starting to have more roles like myself. You know, they're kind of more ingrained within like the coaching staff and the managerial staffs. But Jonah Hill wasn't one of those guys. But it's not an gotcha. awful problem. So. <laughs> so you mentioned micro versus macro analytics. Can yep. you kind of describe what you mean by that? So to me, microanalytics are kind of like the day-to-day analytics, you know, kind of focusing on what a guy's doing that season, that week, that month, you know, whatever. And that's both kind of for scouting purposes, that's both for trend purposes, but it's also for evaluating purposes, you know, how they're going to do, you know, if we sign them, if we trade them, you know, how they're playing with this guy, how they're playing with that guy. Macroac, you know, analytics is kind of more to me modeling, you know, kind of studying what impact the, the data has. You know, how much it really means over the course of the past 15 years, 20 years, 10 years, you know, kind of whatever trends you want to study. Um, it's less kind of more day to day intensive. I don't think they really care as much as what's happening in the now. They're just trying to study how it all impacts each other. You know, the data sets you need are a lot bigger. You know, you, the people who think the macro analytics is more important will generally, you know, say that, you know, they don't have as much as the sample size bias. Right. You know, you have kind of, you know, in the micro, you know, my kind of counter to a lot of that. And then both are important, right? When when teams are working well, like they're using both to kind of a good effect. The mm-hmm. problem is, is the macro sometimes is too long of a time period you're studying. The game has changed so much, right? Even from my short time in the NBA, the game has changed a lot. So when you're using data from 2010 and you're <laughs> waiting at the same as you were doing it for two years ago, you're, it's going to provide a lot of noise. You know, yeah. it, it's different side different type of noise than kind of the micro noise that, you know, they kind of, you know, rail against. Gotcha. That's a, that's a very good point. So when you were given the opportunity to move up to gold, like to the, to the NBA from the D league, um, and you decided to stay with the Santa Cruz Warriors, were you ever worried that you may not be able to move back up or that you like missed an opportunity? I was, you know, it, it was, it was probably the toughest decision I ever had to make. Um, you know, I, it, it was working for Coach Jackson at the time, and, you know, I later ended up working kind of with his staff then next year. You know, most people who I knew in the league was kind of telling me, like, you only kind of get one shot at it, mm-hmm. you know, and it was – and, you know, but I felt one, you know, I had just been two straight years of kind of working for free and working for nothing, plus college, plus grad school, and, again, I wasn't using the degree my parents paid for. You know, I was also kind of at that age where, like, health insurance was starting to get really important because I couldn't be on <laughs> parents anymore. Um, you know, and that that had a lot to do with it. But there was, a, you know, a level of excitement about being with something completely brand new. You know, like, I had to do more stuff in the community. You know, I had to have a bigger role. You know, I had to, you know, go speak to people. I, had, I was director of player personnel, so I had to do more with kind of, you know, picking our team. I was running our local tryout camp i was doing more scouting i was still doing the coaching side like i was having to do almost everything you know imaginable in a basketball setting and i just thought that experience in the long run was going to be more valuable but there was there was fear you know and a lot of people kind of told me i may have made the biggest mistake in my life you know and i don't think they were trying to be cruel but i think they were just saying like you know it's very hard to get into the league regardless you know and I know a lot of friends of mine who are in the G League who had a lot of success in the G League who've never been able to crack it, you know, and I was lucky enough that I was, you know, and that was at the time where people really weren't calling many people up from the G League either. 
right. you know, wasn't kind of the feeder system that it's kind of turned into now. So I think for me, kind of, but I just felt like I had still had a little bit more to learn and study, and this was just a really good opportunity to do that. Do you consider this was more of a right place, right time, or was it more a, a result of um, networking? I would say right place, right time. Okay. Um, you know, obviously being in, you know, Santa Cruz, you know, coming like Dakota and the people running Dakota were seeing people running Santa Cruz, being in Santa Cruz so close to Golden State, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of, I got to know like Kirk, Lake and Travis Schlink from my time in, you know, Reno, which was definitely like right place, right time. Cause right after I took the job in Reno, four other G League teams called me and, I, <laughs> and they were like closer to home, closer to people like friends and family. Okay. I didn't know anybody in Reno, but I made a commitment. Um, so I, it was a lot of right place, right time. But I think, you know, I like to think that a little bit of my work kind of, you know, helped with the networking and helped with the confidence in it. So when you moved up from the D League or G League, was it um, were you moving into the position you have now, but with the Warriors? Kind of. It was so. Yes and no. Like, I think that was part of what I was doing uh, was being kind of an analyst guy for the coaches, but just kind of more on the front office side. Um, You know, I was kind of involved with the coaches, but I wasn't traveling. Like, obviously, I wasn't sitting behind the bench. I was still doing like, you know, some similar reports, but it was a little bit more based out of just now they have a direct person to talk to versus someone who can maybe help drive kind of some of the conversation. So. So when you were with the Warriors, was there ever like a moment that you realized you were a part of something special? Yeah, I mean, you know, so my first year at the Warriors was, you know, Coach Jackson's last year. And like we felt we had a really good team. It just we didn't you know, it wasn't completely clicking the way we wanted to. Um, And then kind of the next year, you know, when Coach Kerr came over, you know, we we started well, you know, won our first, you know, four games. Then we had two awful games against Phoenix where we blew a big fourth quarter lead. We had like 12 turnovers in the fourth. Finished the game with like 23. Then we played the Spurs the next day. And if you know anything about Warriors basketball, the Spurs were like the nemesis of the Warriors for like 20 years. It was incredible. We played them at home and they just kicked our ass. And like everybody was kind of feeling a little bit down. Like, okay, we're the same old Warriors. Like good team, very good team. But like we can't get over the hump against this team. So the next day we played, and we were, like, averaging, like, 22 turnovers a game. Like, we were putting up points, but we just couldn't, like – we were throwing the ball over a place. Obviously, we put in a new offense that so was kind of a little bit more complicated. We then played Brooklyn the next game, and it was a kind of, a, like, an ugly, grinded-out game. But we only kind of finished with 12 turnovers. And, like, our guys started to, like, realize, like, if we can just take care of the ball, we can beat anybody. We ended up then playing the Spurs at home right after the All-Star break. I think we beat them by, like, 15. And then, like, that's when, like, guys are really like, oh, shit, you know, we may have something here. But then, you know, playoffs come. We're playing, you know, New Orleans, sweep them, had that big comeback in the third quarter. Then we're playing Memphis. And Memphis was another team historically that gave us a lot of issues. We couldn't, like, Randolph and Gasol were really tough matchups for us. We're down 2-1. You know, we're kind of waiting. And, you know, the Coach Kerr, Coach Adams, Coach Gentry, Coach Walton, like, all the coaches – they made this really clever idea of, you know, switching the matchups of putting Harrison on Randolph, you know, Draymond on Gasol and Bogut on Tony Allen. And that to me is when I was really like, oh, wow. Like when you're willing to make kind of moves like that and it worked like, I mean, Tony Allen hit his first three. Everybody's dropping their head. 
and, and our coaches are like high fiving because like the two guys, Tony Allen and Josh Smith, if they make their first shot, they're feeling really good. But the law of averages always comes back to bite them. So like we were like like Bogut was like, do you just want us to stick with it? They're like, yes. And like I think Tony missed like his next day. And I love Tony, Chicago kid, great defender. But like when like that kind of adjustment worked and we kind of pretty much rolled through Memphis the next three games. You know, they had little runs, but like most of the games were pretty kind of that's when I kind of felt we had something really special that first year, you know, and kind of going on like, and obviously the big adjustment in the finals that first year to go small kind of helped propel us to it. But to me, it was really kind of that Memphis series to me was like, when I was like, Oh man, like we could do something. And like, that was just something like really special, like to be part of. Yeah. That's awesome. So you we grew up watching the NBA from yep. Chicago. You watched the dominant bulls and obviously on that team, uh, Steve Kerr was on there. Yeah. What was it like working with someone that you, I wouldn't say idolized on no, TV, but you looked up to? Okay. I mean, so I I wanted to idolize him more, but in Chicago, like there was kind of this unwritten rule of like everybody loves Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman, but then you have like your other favorite. You know, so I wanted to be Steve Kerr, but my brother like is seven years older than me, so he called dibs. So I went to Judd Bushler, who was like, you know, the next version of Steve Kerr. Um, I realized I should have gone with Kukoc, but I wasn't young enough to appreciate the genius of Kukoc at the time. <laughs> so I was, when I kind of met and, you know, interviewed with Coach, you know, great guy, incredible human being like him, his whole family. It took every ounce of self-control to not kind of like, you know, fangirl and, you know, fanboy over it, um, you know, and. I think, like, for the most part, I did keep my control. Um, but, like, there was always a little bit of part of me that was, like, a little bit in shock, right? Like, just to be able to work with a guy who, you know, I had so much respect for, you know, who probably brought, like, the best moments of my, like, childhood were because of him. I was at Grand Park, you know, when the Bulls won championships. I was there when he made the speech about how Jordan, you know, needed to get bailed out and all that stuff. <laughs> Whenever, like, they show pictures of Grand Park, I'll just randomly point to a spot and, like, say that's where I was. <laughs> I don't know exactly where I was, but I was there with my mom. Um, like, had all the newspapers from when the Bulls won all the games in the playoffs, like, the T-shirts, which, by the way, 90s fashion was really bad. Like, I want to wear them, but just really ugly t-shirts so i mean but like you know after kind of like the initial shock of like this is steve kerr like it became just a really great working relationship and it was one of those moments like i've ever been part of like being able to work with him just because of the kind of dynamic we had now my brother and like friends of mine from chicago they were a little bit more fanboy you know when they would you know kind of meet coach or hear that i'm working with coach kerr so i like to think i was like cool and and you know more subtle with my fanboyisms <laughs> did you play it off in front of your brother and, and your, your hometown friends? Or were you like, oh, yeah, I'm with Steve they, Kerr. What's they, up? Like, so I actually, I introduced my brother to Steve Kerr, and he's going to kill me for saying it, but too bad. He may have bowed <laughs> and, like, was, like, bowing to him, which <laughs> I got mocked for, like, the next two months for that one, why I'm not bowing to all these coaches. He was about as excited as humanly possible. Most of my, like, friends, like, they just, they made the connection on their own. So it was just kind of more like, yo, how's Steve doing? Like, okay, first of all, it's coach. Like, yeah. I don't call him Steve. You know, secondly, like, you don't call him Steve because you don't know him. You can call him Coach Kerr. And, like, he's great. Love it. It's a great, like, opportunity. So 
So you actually had they wrote a paper or like a a New York Times about you being like the the left side of his brain. Yeah, I that was I mean, an awesome opportunity was I got mocked for that, too. But I think it was like (laughs) kind of mocking. But no, it was, you know, um, you know, Coach Frazier, who was, you know, one of our coaches, worked closely with Steph. Like, you know, they were kind of talking to him and Coach Kerr about, you know, some guys that like maybe the common fan doesn't know as much about and. They brought my name up, and I, I was very, you know, gracious to, you know, kind of coach Kerr and the coaching staff and the players all saying such nice things about him. I may have to pay him 20 bucks to say those things, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was – that was a really cool opportunity. And my, my dad's from New York. You know, my brother went to Columbia, so it was really funny. Friends of theirs would be calling them like, hey, did you know you made the New York Times? And they were, like, at first confused because they didn't know about it because I – had I'm very superstitious and keep a lot of those things like hush hush. So then they send the article and they're like, oh, they wrote about Sammy. Like, oh, yeah, well, I don't care about him, but you guys are in. And I'm like, yeah, they got <laughs> one line. Like, could you at least give like the guy the article is about a little bit of credibility? I know I'm not a physicist, but come on. Like, <laughs> so in that article, it actually called it. It talked about how Sean Livingston called you the little brother of the team yeah. and that you ended up being Sean's go to rebounder. How did you earn that responsibility? So Sean and me actually have a little bit of a past. So Sean's from Peoria. I'm from Chicago. My sophomore year, my high school team made it to the Elite Eight in, you know, for the Illinois high school, you know, playoffs. And we were playing in Peoria against Sean Livingston's Peoria Central. And me being the dumb, you know, high school that I was, I thought we had a really good chance to win. We lost by 20 and Sean carved us to, you know, shreds. You know, we ended up signing Sean introduce myself to Sean, tell him like, you know, that I went to Vaughn and he's like, Oh man, we busted you guys in the playoffs. <laughs> and then he's like, did you play on that team? And I just kind of was like, no, I was just like a dumb sophomore. I was actually at the science fair at the time. So I was like a nerd at that time. So, you know, after practice was done, like I would kind of go rebound forever needed me. And like, usually I would just kind of mosey between courts and then, you know, so where Sean, so where I was at the scores table, Sean's basket was right there. And I don't know how it happened one day, but like I went to rebound for him. Somebody else went to rebound for him. And like we did this little like free throw game where like he tossed him the ball. If Sean made it and then I tossed him the ball, like whoever Sean made the free throw of like would become his rebounder. And I ended up like getting it. Like, so, you know, the other guy I think went with Draymond and Luke and I just kind of stayed with Sean. And we just kind of stuck together for the next four years. You know, we had wow. our little tradition after practice. He would uh, yell my name at the, you know, right after practice. And I would try and, like, throw a high arcing ball and have it land right on the nail so he could just pick it up and shoot his free throw. So we, like, had a little <laughs> tradition. But, yeah, no, I just kind of, you know, Sean was, you know, a vet. You know, he didn't really need, like, a lot of work. You know, he kind of had his own routine. I knew his routine pretty well. Um, you know, and just kind of. You know, and I'm always a big fan of consistency. Like, I like guys to know, like, who's always for rebounding them. So, you know, we just kind of, like, fell into it. And it was, it was like, the, the greatest day. Like, that was probably the most fun I ever had was just, you know, our little routine after practice. Like, I think the, the whole team loved it. He loved it. I loved it. It was great. So. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So when you were with the Warriors, you guys kind of – kind of what did this thing where you helped pick like 300 passes as like a team nightly goals what what kind of went into like picking that number why 300 like what what was all that about 
So when Coach Kerr kind of came on, like one of the things he, you know, he, he had kind of a bunch of questions for us, but a big one he kind of had for us was how do we kind of get more ball movement, right? Like, you know, how do we show these guys that we can get the ball moving from side to side, we're going to have a lot more success as a team. So we ran a whole bunch of numbers. And, like, we were trying to find ones, like, that, like, connected best. And one of the great things about kind of our coaching staff at the time, you know, and especially with, like, Coach Kerr and, like, Coach Walton, like, they're former players, right? So when you, like, bring something up to them, they're approaching it like they are players. So when we kind of threw out, like, all the numbers out there, you know, we had, you know, side to side, you know, rotations, like, everything you can imagine. Like, we just – we saw a trend kind of show up in our wins and losses with passes. And even we – you know, that – the more passes we had, the higher our offensive rating was, you know, but we were like dead last in the league in passes that year. And that at the end of the day, you know, like most of our passes were sort of zero to two. Right. So, you know, you could argue maybe there's a little sample size bias, but, you know, it was just kind of, but we're like, you know what, this could work. So we kind of were looking at the league, you know, and like, I think the number came out to like 294, 297, for like, you know what, let's make it 300. Coach Kerr, like me, is a big baseball fan. 300 is a sacred number in baseball. It was like right <laughs> near the threshold that we felt like it was a good number that the guys would understand. You know, so we like, you know, when we did, you know, this pre-training uh, camp dinner, kind of showed them, you know, some of the data, some of the numbers. And, you know, like early in the year, we were probably, again, like at 280, 290, 278. And again, we were still scoring and being efficient. And again, like, you know, we started hitting 300 and like guys, like guys were seeing the results because we would tell the guys after every practice, the numbers. And it started to become a point where guys would like at halftime would want to know where we're at. Or like when I was starting to sit behind the bench, they would come ask me how many passes we're at. And they'd be like, guys, we're not making our, you know, kind of trend. Like let's pick it up. Let's pass the ball. Like they, like I gave a lot of our players really credit for like buying in and then kind of really kind of being engaged with it. You know, like Andre, like Sean, like Steph, you know, David West, you know, Draymond, those guys, like, it was important for them. Like, they knew, like, that was – when we got to 300, like, magic happened, you know, and that's – you know, it just became something that really kind of got bought in throughout the whole organization. Have you done anything like that with the Pistons? So, obviously, you know, we've looked at passes, but, you know, our style of play is very different. You know, I think that, you know, the the beauty of kind of the NBA is, like, the creativity that you can have with it. You know, the 300 passes was important for, like, the Warriors. And we had some other key metrics that we used. But, you know, we're a different team here in Detroit. You know, we kind of play a different style of way. So we've found, you know, different numbers that we find are important for our team. You know, like corner threes, you know, kind of our first year with the team when we were at our best. Like, there was – when we generated X number of corner threes, like, you know, we were winning a high percentage of our games. You know, like, we we have a – you know, the offense in Golden State was more based on kind of spacing – the offensive or the offensive in Golden State was based on movement. The offensive was based on spacing, right? So if you're basing on spacing, like the ball doesn't have to move as much. You more want to make sure the ball gets to the right spots. You know, in Golden State, because we moved so much, the ball had to move with the players or it was just moving without a purpose. So we have different numbers that we use to kind of track that achieve the same, you know, kind of goal as the 300, but they're different kind of metrics. So what made you decide you wanted to to move on from Golden State and head up north to the Pistons? So I loved my time in Golden State. You know, it was, I mean, a great five-year run. Obviously, the championships don't hurt at all. Um, but, you know, Did I you think get a ring? 
Uh, yeah, I got. I have three NBA rings and the G League ring. Oh, oh man. man, yeah, this guy. I know. <laughs> Are you wearing? I live a rough life. I went it so when uh my first year in Detroit, we had just won the championship the previous year. So we were playing Golden State in March, and they ended up, you know, presenting me the ring when we went to kind of Oakland. You know, yep. Sean took me to the back and actually presented it to me. But, oh. like, when I brought it back, like, to the locker room, like, everybody wanted to put it on and wear it. <laughs> I don't know if Bernard told you, but he – we were going to Denver right after that. Him and his wife came to my room so they could take pictures with the ring. So, <laughs> so yeah, let's just say a lot of people I know have taken advantage of the – my niece, who's like five years old, keeps wanting to bring it to show and tell. And I'm like, that's not happening. So, I, you know, I, I don't have it with me. I have it somewhere safe. But she's like, yeah, I want to bring the rings to show and tell. Like, nope, that's not happening. Like, <laughs> lose it and I will lose my mind. So they are in a safe place. You know, eventually I'll try and build like a, you know, box to display them. But for now, I just want to keep them safe and, you know, have them. But um, but no. So obviously we had a lot of that team success. But I think I kind of reached a point within the organization where I was coming close to my ceiling, you know. And while I loved everybody in Golden State, you know, you know, from the front office to of the coaches to the players, you know, it's hard to, you know, a lot of times you have to move on to move up in this industry. And you know, kind of when I got presented the opportunity in Detroit, like, you know, it was just something I couldn't pass up. You know, I, I talked to Coach Kerr for a long time. Could talk to Mike Brown, talk to Larry Harris, you know, talk to a lot of people I trusted, you know, and it was just, you know, they, a lot of times you got to build a network in the NBA and you can build it obviously through a little bit of reputation and just knowing people who know people, but sometimes you also just have to move on and work with new people. And I think to me, that was like where it was really, you know, special was being able to kind of work with the new people in Detroit, you know, coach Casey has a great reputation, you know, he's an awesome guy, you know, kind of working with coaches like, Mike uh, Nori and Sean Sweeney and Coach Gerg, who's like the father of player development, who at the time hated analytics. And now we're like, you know, <laughs> best friends. So like, you know, I just think kind of building your network, you know, and building people to work with is really important for growth. Right. Like I think the Warriors were a very unique situation with how he played and, and kind of that stuff. And then Detroit, you kind of is a more, you know, how the NBA is transitioning. And I think if you can find a way to merge the two, you know, you could have something really special, like, you know, if I end up going to another team or the next. So what big changes have you have you done in Detroit? And have you run into any, like, hiccups or anything with that? Um, You know, I don't think, you know, we've probably been a little bit more ambitious with trying to automate. Um, did a lot of stuff in Golden State by hand because it was just kind of, you know, easier and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think some of the stuff we've tried to dig into in Detroit – just like in Golden State, we're ambitious. Like Detroit, we have more of an analytics staff, right? In Golden State, it was really just me and a third party. And while I probably overused the third party to the point that they're probably going to sue me for the amount of hours I went over, we they love me. So well, they say they love me. They probably don't. <laughs> so we won't ask them their opinions. But, like, I mean, we had some really great dialogue, and they helped me a lot with a lot of stuff. Kind of using – kind of having your own department, you're able to, like, dig in deeper even more into stuff. You know, so I think we've gotten a little ambitious with some of our theories and stuff we want to test out. And I would say we've had some hiccups with that. You know, we probably were a little bit too ambitious. I think, again, like the day to day stuff, you know, we still have a really good feel for. But like some of the more bigger picture stuff, some of the more theoretical stuff, some of the more where's the league transitioning stuff, you know, 
probably we haven't gotten as much data as we want on it, you know, and haven't gotten those stuff done. But, you know, we, we still got time. You know, I don't I mean, those were never going to be something we needed like immediately. You know, I think it's more important to get it right than to do it fast, you know, with some of it. You know, a lot of time on the coaching side, you know, doing it fast is more important than kind of doing it exact. You know, you got to be able to tell the story, you know, in time to kind of make an impact in the games. I think with some of the front office stuff, like you can spend a little bit more time and kind of make it, you know, more exact and perfect. So I think that's kind of been the biggest things that we've tried to do more kind of in Detroit, you know, than Golden State. I gotcha. So earlier you talked about you kind of play a role with the, the coaches challenge. Is that right? Yes. So that's kind of a fairly new thing. What, what kind of role do you play with that? So my job is to kind of, if there's a play that we think should be challengeable, quickly review the film and then tell coach whether he should challenge it. And then if I'm wrong, get yelled <laughs> at by everybody in the vicinity, including the fans, the officials, the dancers, all the players, coaches, trainers, strength guys, medical directors, all of them. So, <laughs> wow, I didn't realize everyone yelled at you, dancers. Okay. It's it's like the it's the new favorite pastime. Okay. So, oh yeah. Yeah. I gotta I gotta imagine they they gotta come up with some unique quote unquote punishments for you. Well, taking I, a lap. Luckily, we actually were one of the better teams in challenges. So Good. what was funny was in the preseason, I went over and I was just getting murdered. Like, uh, this is going to suck. We're just not going to even challenge plays. I think the first <laughs> one, the regular season, like, I lost. And, like, I mean, they're like, then I won one in Indiana. It was a, strategically, it was a dumb challenge, but I really needed the win. Like, to just kind of get some, like, you know, you know, uh, positive reinforcement. I ended up winning, and then we had a really good stretch. We actually had some really good challenges we won. I mean, most teams in the league did. Like, I'm not saying we were better or worse than really anybody else, but, like, we had some, like, really good ones. The worst were, like, ones that, like, to this day, I swear I'm right, and the, and the refs just didn't have the balls to overturn it. I mean, some, <laughs> like, some of them were just, like, very clearly, like, we were right, but they just didn't want to overturn it. So... Mm-hmm. Hopefully I don't get fined for that. <laughs> can you get fined for that? We, we can. Yeah, I, we I can. don't think can. so. Yeah. I, mean, okay. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I may have a history of <laughs> yelling at officials about calls, so. <laughs> have you gotten fined for that? No, I, I have not gotten teed up, but if I keep going, it's going to happen. So simmer it down. I've gotten glares before, but never the technical. Okay. Do you oh, have man. an official that does Damn. not like you the most? The fiery. I get so here's so in my defense, like I don't think there's a specific one. I'm pretty sure it's just all of them. But like it's really tough when you have the whole game in front of you and you're the computer and you can see everything that's happened. Like I mean, and I know like it's much harder for them, but like some of them are really clear from my point of view. And I just want to let them know that, that like, I just, you know, think it was really clear that they missed a call and, you know, it is what it is, but I've, I've tried to get better. Um, but you know, and like the heat of the game gets to me, I think that's, you know, one of the downfalls of not playing is like, you know, I kind of a little bit more emotional about kind of the stuff that's happening, you know, than guys who played, who kind of know how to keep their kind of emotions in check. So. All right, Sammy. So this next portion we didn't send you these questions beforehand, and that was on purpose. Oh, okay. the section, we have the hot seat questions. Okay. And me and Nick are going to go back 
Fourth, they're pretty short questions. They're nothing too crazy. Hopefully, they don't they don't actually get you in the hot seat or get you fined for uh, tampering, etc. Um, but Should we want you to answer with your gut. on, so it's like a literal hot seat, or whoa, you just you just breaking the mold here. That you're the first guest that's offered to do that. If you want to do that, go ahead. We'll wait. I will I will I'll sit on take... my phone and hopefully it will be hot enough. How about that? <laughs> All right. Okay. There we go. There we go. Okay, so easy question. You're from Chicago, so we'll start it off with this one. Who, in your eyes, is the GOAT? It's Jordan. All right. So we, you kind of answered this question earlier, but being surrounded by all these great players and coaches, do you ever find yourself fangirling or fanboying? Not, not really. I mean, you know, I think there's like that initial like kind of, oh, my God, and then you realize they're just normal guys. Like a lot of them just like to do normal things. So, you know, I, like early in my career, maybe there was like the initial like, oh, my God, like, you know, Steve Kerr's talking or Steph Curry. But that gets I get over that, like in the next five minutes. So I'm not really kind of the fangirling type. So this is one of our favorite questions to ask all of our guests. Adam Silver makes you commissioner for the day. What are you going to do? Ooh, so I'm going to I'm going to fix continuation in the NBA and the lower defensive box. Okay. Okay. Can you so elaborate? Very, uh, so in the NBA, like obviously everyone knows continuation, but there's a box basically where continuation starts. I think it's way too high. So guys like Harden and like a lot of the top drivers, they can initiate contact so high on the floor and still get away with continuation. I think if they lower it, like you'll take away a lot of the BS continuation ones. And I think it'll help the game kind of run a lot smoother, you know, and make kind of it a little bit more of a skill game. Okay. So what has been your favorite city to travel to in the with the NBA? Ooh. So Philly has very underrated food. And, like, I was a history major, so obviously the history of Philly, like, to me is, you know, kind of very underrated. I mean, biasly, like, my favorite city is the Bay Area just because of all the relationships I made or Chicago for home. Um, but I'm, I'm actually going to go Philly. I actually like Philly is like, you know, been one of my favorite ones fit. Like, I mean, Miami and LA, like you can get to a lot of fun there, but like, I, I want to go Philly. Okay. Except right. like, that a winner when it's just like nasty out, but like Philly in March, that that's the way to go. Dead a winner. That's like half the NBA season, buddy. November oh, through February. That. Luckily, I've been lucky that we've always gone to Philly really early when it's still like fall or really late where it's spring. Like when it's when it's like the NBA season, I just want to be in California or Florida. Right. Like, or, there you like just let's make all the road trips in December and January down there. There you go. <laughs> so where do you see yourself in, let's say, five to ten years? You know, I'm hoping to kind of continue to grow in the industry. You know, I. I you know, not sure if my past going to kind of lean more on the coaching side or the front office side. You know, I'm going to kind of let the, you know, Jaron Collins used to say, like, when the game says shoot, you shoot. Like, I'm just kind of going to let the game dictate kind of which path I go. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping to kind of, you know, kind of keep growing and getting better in the industry and, you know, hopefully, you know, be a part of some really good teams. So. All right. So outside of the NBA, what do you like to do? Uh, I love movies. Um, you know, big movie guy, big Star Wars and Indiana Jones guy. Um, I love kind of going for walks, uh, just kind of like playing sports, like any sport. Maybe not cricket, 
but like almost any sport but cricket. Um, you know, I, I like, you know, kind of going to, you know, I love going to sporting events too, like baseball or football or stuff like that. Um, you know, trying new restaurants and things like that. But probably the biggest thing is probably movies. Big movie buff guy. Have you okay, seen branching off of that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Okay. Have you seen the movie Tenet? We were talking about that in our last episode. Not yet. It's on my list of things. Okay. I've told you got to be very focused and like like kind of locked in to watch it. So yeah. I just got to find get like make sure I'm in the right state of mind um, before I end up watching it. You will not be in the right state of mind no matter what <laughs> you do. It is like a combination of Interstellar and Inception on like steroids and acid. It's crazy. Oh, that's that, that. Yeah, maybe I should just you know take acid and then watch it. Maybe it'll make for <laughs> it'll make for a good well, viewing. Tell us <laughs> yeah. So, what is the craziest stat or stat line that you've tracked or are currently tracking? Ooh. Um... So I used to track Zaza assists, which is the <laughs> assist where a guy rim runs, sucks in the defense, and leads to an open three on a transition break. What? So how do you how do you come up with that? Like, do you just notice that happening a lot, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna start tracking this? Pretty much, yeah. All right. Okay. Is it named so, after Zaza or? No, oh, yeah, it's named after Zaza. So like. Okay. When, when I was with Zaza and going state, he would always run the floor really hard to the rim, and guys would get sucked in. And, like, we would get usually about one or two Zaza assists, like, in our best games. And, like, when we had zero Zaza assists, like, games usually didn't go as well. So. Do you still call them Zaza assists yeah. in Detroit? Yes. Okay. Well, we had Zaza in Detroit, too. Yeah. That's they, true. They That's will true. always be known as Zaza assists. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We'll be looking out for those. <laughs> so this last section, we're going to do a little word association okay. um, with some of the players that you've either rebounded for exclusively okay. or just kind of played with or just watch the stat lines, obviously, doing your job. All right. So number one, Sean Livingston. Favorite. Just my Draymond favorite. Green. Smart. One of the smartest guys I've ever been around. Steph Curry. Leader. I, he, he's the one who kind of set the tone in Golden State. You know, everything kind of feeds off him. And, I mean, he has one of the best leadership styles. And, I mean, he makes everybody feel like part of the family. The now-retired Andrew Bogut. I mean, he's criminally underrated. I don't think people realize how good Bogut is and was, especially before the injuries. And, you know, just criminally underrated. Like, you want, again, like, he's in the same class as Draymond as IQ, you know, on players. David West. Intense with a high IQ. Clay Thompson. Don't say chocolate milk because of his sponsorship. (laughs) Just unconscious shooter. Just just unconscious. I don't think he ever really, like, is feeling anything in the game and is just kind of in his own zone the whole time. But that's why best type ever. Okay, now we're gonna switch to Detroit. Blake Griffin, incredible, like skilled. I mean, there's very few guys, you know, when he's healthy, that can do everything on the floor like he can. Andre Drummond, a magnet. I mean, magnetic personality, magnet for the ball. 
you know, just, I mean, he just, he have, finds a way to just have everything come to him. Uh, Derek Rose. Electrifying. I mean, the guy's gone through so much in his career, and he can still just break anybody down at any moment, you know. Luke Kennard. Silky smooth. <laughs> Silky smooth. I He's a guy that, like, if you just, you look at him, you're like, this guy should, like, you know, be selling insurance then you get him on a basketball court and the guy just makes buckets from everywhere and it's all just all the old man getting to his spot i mean he's just he's silky smooth and that thing just goes straight in all right and our last one a little shout out to a former guest bernard condovo <laughs> uh deadpool be careful what you say <laughs> uh that he, he, he'll right. know what that means. He is okay. a Deadpool fan. I don't know <laughs> okay. if he brought it up on the call, but he that whenever I think of Bernard, I think of Deadpool. We'll tag Deadpool and Bernard in the post when we post. So. Perfect. <laughs> all right, Sandy, that's all we got. Thank you so much for taking the time and doing the interview with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all.